this kind of imagination is so specific that um, I think it, you know, the, the description in a way, the lyrical description in a way, is a lot more accurate. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week, I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gilzambrano. Together, we speak to printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative practice since 1997. And if you're looking to add some pizzazz to that practice, check out their new line of additive glitter. Add a sprinkle of that glitter to any Speedball Fabric screen printing ink to bring a touch of shimmer to your next design. This glitter additive can be used in nearly any ratio, whether your sparkling vision is more subtle or dripping with scintillating shine. Check out the link in the show notes for more information. This episode of Hello Print Friend is also brought to you by McLean's Printmaking Supplies, who've been dedicated to the art and artists of relief printmaking since 1979. The small specialist team in the Pacific Northwest is the leading supplier of Japanese relief tools for printmakers in the U.S. and abroad, whose primary purpose is to help you find the materials and support you need to reach your printmaking goals. Our editor, Timothy Pauschak's two favorite tools are his Fatatsuwaru Sankakuto 3mm V-gouge and his Josue Maruto 1mm U-gouge, both from McLean's. But you don't have to take our word for it because these tools speak for themselves. Head on over to McLean's at imclean's.com to find your new favorite tool and keep on carving. My guest this week is Woonjin Ho, a Bristol-based printmaker who is currently getting her PhD at the Center for Fine Print Research. Woonjin was the first guest on Hello Print Friend, and today we return to her to catch up on the tumultuous last three years. If you want to hear Woonjin's full backstory, I highly suggest you check out episode number one. It still slaps. Woonjin is also a practicing veterinarian, and we talk about the ways in which interacting with animals intersects with the intuitive nature of art making. We also talk about her life during lockdown in the most densely populated part of Britain, the print she made about her life in isolation to send to her father, who was in a care facility, and her upcoming panel at the Impact Conference. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to go back to the beginning with Woonjin Ho. Hi, Woonjin. How's it going? I'm good, Miranda. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Are you surviving Storm Eunice okay? Yeah, the, the clouds are really running. They're kind of like rushing through the sky, but we've got blue sky now. So it's it's quite beautiful. Mm, I feel like yeah. that is a is a very heavy handed metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it was actually um, relatively quiet here because I'm in the middle of London. But um, I think on the coast, a lot of trees have fallen over. Mm. And um, it's been quite a wild day with ferocious winds, but no rain. So it's kind of like a, a virtual sort of storm. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, like a storm simulation. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> totally. Well, I'm I'm really, really delighted to have you back on because you were my first brave, intrepid podcast guest of all time. 
um, approximately, you know, 3.6 million years ago. Um, <laughs> uh, and when I was in a basement in a house in Sydney, uh, just trying to make all of this work. And yeah, and now we're, I don't know, I think you might end up being like the 150th guest or something. I'm not sure how all the numbers will work out, but it'll be right around there. And it's just, it's just really wonderful to connect again and, and share some of our story of what's happened in the last, yeah, the last years. So thank you for, for being willing to come on and talk again. Thank you, Miranda. I mean, your podcast is just amazing. Um, just because of your warmth and your curiosity. And you've introduced me to loads of artists I've not heard of before, whose work I really admire. And it's really opened up this kind of intimate conversation on so many levels. So I really love the way that you champion printmakers. Oh. And they're still going <laughs> strong. And you're going fast and fast and faster. Every week you're releasing an episode I now. Know. So. Yes. Yeah. We we Going from strength to strength. It's really yeah, we started doing weekly in the pandemic and then I just kind of I think I got addicted to the to the challenge. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> to the thrill, oh, you know, of weekly podcasting. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, yes. yeah. Thank you for having me back. Yeah. Well, you shared your story in depth and in detail and with just beautiful honesty in the first episode. So I, I think if anyone wants to hear the, um, you know, sort of baby printmaker foundations, wound gene, you know, all through, they can go and listen to episode one, because I still think it's it's a great conversation that we had. But to, to kind of ground people a bit for our chat today, let's go back a little bit. And maybe just if you can do the uh, who you are, where you are, which you've already said, London in the middle of a storm, but then the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, explaining how it, or just, yeah, how would you describe what you do? Yeah. Okay, these are all really existentialist, terrifying <laughs> questions right now. <laughs> um, my name's Winjin, and um, I was, um, oh, I'm really shy now. It's so weird. Um, I'm, I, I don't know what to say. Um, my name's Winjin, and um, I met you like, how many years ago? Like 15 years ago in Seattle. Mm -hmm. But I was born in England, in Oxford, and I'm now in London, uh, working from my living room, as has become the norm for most people mm -hmm. during the pandemic. And um, I work as a research associate for the Centre for Print Research in the University of West of England in Bristol. And I'm doing a PhD on printmaking. And I'm also a printmaker. So it's a triple print combination. <laughs> um, <laughs> two of them really research-based and one of them is um, from the heart, making from the heart. Yeah, absolutely. So. And then just to, again, give a little more context, can you just let people know where did you grow up and, and what role did art play in that part of your life? Okay, so I grew up in a... a family from um, Singapore, Malaysia. My dad was a vet and my mom was a nurse. And I grew up in this really medical family with a family business next doors. And so I helped out in the surgery 
And in my spare time, I did drawings of cats and my sisters. So <laughs> art was like this kind of escapism from this very practical um, livelihood of, of being in a, a family that had moved to the UK in the 60s and who were struggling with their, not struggling, but surviving and thriving with their small business, their small family business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then where does printmaking come into your story? So when I was about 11, I went to a local art fair called Art in Action, and they have these really short classes. I think they're about 40 minutes long, and I took a lino cut class, and I remember the joy and the thrill of carving a block and getting confused. I wasn't sure which (laughs) way was which, carving almost everything away, and then making this print and the reveal of the print. I still remember like peeling the paper back and seeing my picture of a cat on a roof and being absolutely overwhelmed and thrilled that this was Mm. something that could happen with just, you know, some very basic tools and that it could happen at home. So I begged my parents for materials and I made a lot of work on the kitchen table in the family home when I was growing up. Yeah, that's so, I feel like that's a a wonderful kind of like first bookend to a bit of where you are now, you are, you are, pre-practicing for pandemic art making by doing the like at home yeah Yeah, the at home practice as a kid yeah yeah and so you worked as a veterinary surgeon yourself for for quite some time and and that would show up in your prints um you've got a wonderful one of of you getting uh just you know absolutely chomped on by a small dog (laughs) yeah that's true yeah Um, I still work as a vet actually I work in a local practice uh, on a Monday night on a Saturday afternoon and it's a really kind of grounded job where you can like everything you do is practical and you can be kind to people mm-hmm. and you are in this incredible position of being invited into somebody's family and, um, you know, dealing with their, their their sweet family member, which I think is a, a very unusual position to have in a professional context. I don't mm-hmm. know if there are many other jobs that have that kind of uh, ability to cross that bridge of formality and enter into somebody's life um so I do that job still with a really lovely practice called Poplar Vets around the corner Mm. six minutes walk from my house um with a really lovely group of people um so I do still work a little bit yeah yeah I mean I I can only imagine that it really has as you say like that complete grounding effect because you know um, as artistically minded people, I know we can be prone to the existential and, you know, the why and the how and, you know, all of that kind of thing. And I'm sure that, you know, working with, with life and death and birth and sickness and, you know, the arc of a little creature's life, mm. um, I mean, that's really must bring it, bring it home you know, um, probably quite often, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah, there's just so much tenderness and care. And also this amazing ability for us to um, connect telepathically 
all kind of you know oh yeah <laughs> I know you know what I mean don't you so I do kind of like the conversation about connecting through aura or about being on the same wavelength as which is another conversation that we have beyond words and beyond body language maybe it's smell maybe it's mm-hmm. magnet magnetic um impulses maybe maybe it's maybe it's our microbiomes talking to each other mm-hmm. but there's this kind of like other communication that's very real and I really like that I really enjoy it yeah yeah and I think that <laughs> growing to trust that form of communication is a way of trusting your intuition, which I think is really important for the act of making as well. Um, Because at least for me, like I I can't think through it. I need to be able to get into the knowing space, into the body. And it's I've never had it pointed out before, but I I do really understand the ways in which that crosses over with animal companionship. Um, Because Mm -hmm. as you know, I'm I'm very uh, animal centric in my (laughs) so much. (laughs) so so much and um and you know i have this ability i don't know it sounds big sounds like i think i have a psychic power or something but but i can tell from the way my dogs smell if they need something like i i will be sitting working or driving and i can tell there's a shift in the scent in the car and i'll know that they need a bathroom break like i'll know (laughs) that like they need out (laughs) And it's I got that. Wow, that's great. I call it like the need smell. I'll be like, oh, they're giving off and they need something. They have the need smell. (laughs) But it's yeah, and and you could think I'm crazy for that. But like I'm, you know, like I'm I'm always right. And I think I think trusting that that knowing that exists outside of the intellectual, the analytical, the 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 structured the um the that the human you know like like last formation ape brain part of ourself uh is so important as i said to to the creative process and and to trusting the journey that you need to be on um you know to to have an outcome yeah i like that parallel you're drawing between the the um non-verbal kind of different way of being and the way we are with animals Mm. I think you're right it is displaced it's kind of like one step to the side and maybe turning off the rational brain a little bit and maybe trusting something else Mm -hmm. whether it be smell or sound or um mood or I don't know something becoming receptive to something else Mm -hmm. is perhaps an important point um but this place is quite a vulnerable place too isn't it yeah like a secretive inside place so I think it it can be um I don't know potentially dangerous thing to do (laughs) (laughs) yeah like if you're if you're not um it was the way I described it if you're not right with yourself and your god like it can really be destabilizing Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think what I what I mean by that is is you know the vulnerability of of coming from that place of purity. If if you don't have your feet grounded, and somebody comes along and takes a swipe at you when you have your soft underbelly showing, um, that can be potentially truly damaging. Uh, you know, to to a to a creative practice, to a sense of self. Um, I think that's part of the reason why grad school is so hard for people. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's just show yeah, your underbelly and then someone comes and takes mm-hmm. a swing at it and then show your underbelly and someone comes and takes mm. a swing at it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, actually, um, I think that's very true that grad school does 
um, tend to amp up the critical volume. And so you have to develop a way of fighting back. And I didn't find it very easy to make when I was on the back foot. Mm -hmm. I thought like being aggressive or being um, protective of my um, inner ideas, it's just not very creative place for me to make. So I found that quite hard. I didn't enjoy it at all. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I guess it's a learning experience, but it wasn't my, it wasn't a productive experience from Mm -hmm. my point of view. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's, it, it is vastly variable. Um, I think people's mm-hmm. graduate school experiences, but you know, more often than not, I people talk about it to me as an as a destabilizing time. Um, which is not to mm-hmm. say that all destabilization is inherently negative. You know, I mean, sometimes you 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 lose your footing and you have to find a a better stance when you land again. But it's certainly not comfortable when you're mm-hmm. <laughs> before you find it again when you're flailing in the air to just kind of like push this metaphor to its you know yeah. ultimate. <laughs> ultimate conclusion there when you're doing your triple somersault backflip <laughs> yes exactly exactly you're not sure you're gonna land yeah uh-huh yeah well and i think maybe and, and maybe i'm wrong but you know your work is very autobiographical you know you um write or write and uh on your blog um where you're very open and you write really beautifully and then also you know in your prints they tell the story of you and your experience and 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 your family and um you know your mother and father and their illnesses um and their experiences as um you know older people and your experience as a daughter and and your experience in lockdown um do you think that does that feel maybe more vulnerable sort of doing like the the visual storytelling from from the eye than um you know maybe other forms that you've done that that uh you know have maybe at least one degree of separation between your your lived experience? Are you asking about um the prints I made over the pandemic the covid tales series? Yeah. Or- yeah, so shall I think I, it, I, actually, shall I tell you about the whole series? Because it started about, let's see, um, 2016. So it started about six years ago. Uh-huh. Um, so I the whole series started because about seven and a half years ago, my dad tripped and broke his neck and ended up in a care home. And I don't know if I told you about that in the first episode, but he was in this care home and we'd go and visit once a week and talk about the outside world and ask him how he was. And all he'd done was read or practice his singing or, you know, watch some television. And it was a very narrow, confining life, um, not really filled with much optimism. And it was difficult to talk about like, you know, journeys or travel or swimming or things that he would have loved to do. Yeah. So I thought, well, maybe I'll make some images that can, well, the question for me was, can I make an image that is funny that will keep the conversation going when I'm gone? So can I tell stories that will entertain him or that will provoke reflection and um, maybe appeal to his very absurd sense of humor. Mm-hmm. So I started this series, which I just called as a placeholder, like the little line of cut series, a diary series. And I soon realized that just doing pictures of the everyday life in London as a non-white 
female was already pretty absurd. Uh-huh. So, you know, like going going swimming and being in the changing room and everybody would be on their cell phone even while they were dripping wet. And I'd make a picture of that or um, I would tell him about how, you know, I nearly lost a hand to a poodle, uh-huh. which is the print that you talked about earlier. Or I'd talk about like um, what it's like to be in Whitechapel with the the trash, well, you know, the rubbish, but basically trash flying through the air um, and thinking that this was a really beautiful urban experience. So I kind of like make pictures of things that I came across on a day-to-day basis. And then when I zoomed out, I realized that they were pictures that did have um, a wider function, that they were actually a picture of something that wasn't commonly made Mm. um, because they were everyday coincidental experiences in female spaces like the changing room of the of the dress shop where none of the dresses fit you and you feel really fat like Mm -hmm. that's not a picture that actually makes it to um, the mainstream media very often or a picture of um, being the only girl in an all-boy sauna in Mm -hmm. Soho Mm -hmm. (laughs) so these pictures just became like observations of um life and and they were intended to make my dad laugh and then the pandemic struck and suddenly the pictures were the only way I could really talk to him because I found it so upsetting phoning him on Mm -hmm. Skype and not being able to touch his face so um, I used to post him these postcards and they took on a different function because they were suddenly only about life in a one-bedroom flat surrounded by a lot of other one bedroom flats (laughs) in the most densely populated part of the of of England Mm. um with 16,000 people per square kilometer in Tower Hamlet wow yeah it's really 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 crowded yeah Um, so yeah it became a conversation out in the bathroom like working (laughs) from home (laughs) having a horizontal life um feeling that I was safe in a cocoon and then feeling that I was maybe like an evil mastermind plotter, um, plotting, um, you know, like how those um, Bond villains usually have like domes that they sit inside and have a control <laughs> panel. <laughs> so my fantasies took off, you know, this imagination mm-hmm. just. And I feel um, like all, uh, all your plants could be your, you know, your co-conspirators. I could see it. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, they are. They very much, although I managed to kill one. One, I did a couple of pictures of it and then it died. And I think I overwatered it. Oh, too much attention. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, It got smaller and smaller. I kept giving it baths because I was worried it was drying out. (laughs) I think I drowned it. But it got really, really, really very small and then it disappeared. So, yeah, I made all these and um, the tragedy is that I posted them to his room in the care home and we weren't allowed to see him for a good year and two or three months. And then he got quite sick and they allowed us in Mm -hmm. and he died a couple of weeks after. And in the cupboard, there were all my postcards in just filed in a cupboard And so none of them actually did make it up onto the walls. Mm. So, you know, my conversations were too painful and maybe he didn't want to look at them. Mm. Maybe he didn't have, he didn't have use of his hands. So he needed a carer to read, read the postcard to him and then put it on the wall. And if there was nobody there because they were too busy, I think they would have just 
put it in the cupboard and, and it would have been forgotten. So the conversation was a one-way conversation from the very beginning. Yeah. But, um, you know, the last year of postcards didn't really... Um, they were just shouting into the void, really. So, Were you ever in a position to ask any of his caregivers about it? I mean, I'm sure, you know, with everything healthcare workers have been through in this pandemic, I could see hesitating um, to do that. But was there anyone there who you felt comfortable having that conversation with? I don't know. I think we couldn't really ask without there being an implication of of sadness and Mm -hmm. and um maybe failed responsibility but i do remember that halfway through they allowed us visits outdoors Mm -hmm. so we would sit like three meters apart and shout at each other in a very (laughs) hot garden yeah and um i would say um you know I, i would really long to bridge that divide by touching him and so the carer would come to take him away and they'd say is there anything else you want and I'd say can I hug him Mm -hmm. and they'd say okay Mr. Ho I'm going to hug and I would say no I don't want you to hug my dad I want to hug my dad and they would say I'm sorry it's not it's not permitted for you to hug your father but I can hug him for you and the look of oh just I mean my heart still breaks when I think about it but the look on his face to have this very keen, sweet, you know, enthusiastic, eager carer give him what she thought was a daughterly hug on command as if a robot from the real daughter who's in the same airspace but at a safe distance. Just It was just one of the most absurd and cruel moments of the pandemic for me is this kind of horrible sense of safety and security that, that translated to... Um, very heartbreaking moments. Mm. Like, yeah. Yeah. Really, really sad. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like, I'm getting really emotional hearing you talk about it. I'm sure that's... um, uh, I can't imagine what it would be like to see it and experience it. And, um, you know, the the distance and the closeness at the same time, um, I think, ironically, often can be more difficult than just distance. Um, Mm. Yeah. And everybody meant well. That's the whole thing. The yeah. whole the whole of these, you know, everybody's altered behavior has been in general for the common good and in general for um, safety and security. And maybe people have just taken it too far, but they, they meant really well. So it's very hard to, you know, the whole thing. I, I dropped books off for him to read and they would go missing because they would they wanted to disinfect them. Right. He <laughs> wanted to make sure that I wasn't like sending in COVID bombs. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Things like that. But um, they were very, very wonderful, warm staff who he'd known for years. Mm-hmm. So I think, in terms of most people's um, experience, he had relatively a, a lovely group of people who looked after him. They just weren't us. So we couldn't. We couldn't enter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and I it, it it seems like a like an example of of what I've heard a lot kind of through the course of the pandemic where um see I don't know how to put it but it's something about how the risk benefit is taken out of an individual's hand you know so they they they're not letting you know your father a grown ass accomplished man make mm-hmm. that decision for himself you know mm-hmm. um of like no I I this is worth the risk, you know, to have this, this contact with my daughter. And, and that, 
um, you know, of course, has this this uh, branching effect in that, of course, you know, if it's not it's not just an individual's decision because it does affect everyone else. Does this, I don't know if this makes sense, but it's sort of like, it's sort of like we can't make the decisions for ourselves because of the nature of a transmittable disease that it then, that decision affects everything else, you know? So like the, like if you, you wouldn't just be COVID bombing him, right? You'd be like the the whole place, right? So it's, it's this really um, like uh, tragic kind of, back and forth um that leads to yeah just really heartbreaking situations um that are there's not a really other another word for it it's yeah Mm. you you have an image that you made that i actually think about all the time um which is it's it's you in front of a a zoom meeting with your video turned (laughs) off (laughs) <laughs> and you're you're just sobbing <laughs> like <laughs> and and I just I I when I think about any one image for me that sums up this experience <laughs> it's that one um and cuz there's just so much in there about you know obviously the digital world that we fell into and then and then the like the trying to save face of of of, of yeah. you know, not wanting to, you know, worry your colleagues on your Zoom meeting, but just really needing to have a cry. Um, and, you know, you you also documented comical moments of, you know, trying to trim your own hair or, or do Pilates, you know, um, yeah. for the first time via uh, YouTube, because I know, you know, you're quite an active person and swimming was such a joy for you, as you mentioned, you know, these, these locker rooms um, that you ha- have some inspiration from, but of course public pools were closed. So did you find, you know, making and documenting these images, as you say, you know, you had this, um, this desire to connect with your father, but the actual making, did, was it cathartic for you or um, healing or was it able to like bring some levity to your own experience? Yeah, you're really perceptive. I, I was making these pictures for my dad and then I realized I'm actually making them for me. Mm. And so I could then be, I'm, I'm sure I've never been in therapy about this. But <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure there's some kind of really great like explanation, but I could look at the little girl crying in the picture and go, oh, don't worry about it. <laughs> really cheer, cheer up, it'll be okay. Oh <laughs> and, and really love laugh I think it really made me laugh because the com- the conversation was so absurd I was basically working with a new group of people who um, the Center for Print Research was mm-hmm. had just received like millions of pounds and so there were 47 people in the in the staff oh, there used to be like five or six. Oh my gosh there were these new members of staff and then we were all working remotely and most people had houses and gardens and mm. and most people were in a relationship and <laughs> and i found myself not really uh, you know there are a lot of very sunny wonderful people who would just say they'd learned a new way of making donuts or <laughs> their garden was looking amazing or that their pets were very happy because of all the attention yeah <laughs> it's like staring out my window going a little bit crazy feeling like I hadn't exercised my voice in a few days yeah and thinking I can't spoil their joy but I don't I'm not feeling the same level of elation mm-hmm. why you know and I I look back now and realize well it's actually probably more normal for me to be feeling 
hemmed in and crazy um, than joyful. And maybe they their their kind of um, optimism was also a front, which is hard yeah. to feel. You don't know what's real on the screen. So maybe we were all acting together, but my acting style was particularly poor. So <laughs> <laughs> I'd sit there looking really miserable. <laughs> And then just hide from view because I thought I can't bear it anymore. I can't bear that nobody can tell that I'm really upset. I can't. I can't mm. bear the fact that we can't have tiny whispered conversations like we used to do in the corner of the by the kettle. You know. Yeah. I found it very very hard. Mm. So, yeah. Well, and I think yeah. in in the time that I've known you, you've always been someone who's so interested in in a genuine human connection. And I I don't know maybe that. Um, phrases uh what's the word like you know can can be a bit um like oh gosh what's the word i'm looking for i'm so glad i get to edit myself but it's like yeah it can, it can be yeah it can sound yeah glib maybe or kind of like um you know like a sound bite but mm. but for you it seems very very real like that was very clear from the moment i met you that that you are are someone who really wants to connect um with other people and understand other people and build something with other people and i can imagine then that the pandemic would would be more difficult for someone like you than someone who you know has more of a isolationist mentality naturally <laughs> <laughs> I, I really i i i think you've just said something you've put your finger on something quite deep <laughs> um, but I think I realized in the in the transition from a vet job to an office job that happened just three months before the lockdown was that um, I'd always worked in this way where I'd meet someone and then I'd have to not only gain their trust but I have to gain the trust of their dog or cat, and <laughs> yeah. then um, and then be as honest as possible and ethically upright as possible quickly and efficiently mm. and um within a, a budget and you have you have to be present you can't be um floating around or thinking about other things or thinking about um, bureaucracy you might have to worry about legalities of using certain drugs or whatever but you'd really have to be there you'd have to figure mm -hmm. out what you can do and um the office life is a different tempo it's it's something where you could store up all your technical questions and ask them next month if you wanted to you know it's a kind of right. like a uh, or like, right, I'm going to do this experiment, but I'm going to plan it first. I'm going to do this reading and then I'm mm. going to figure out who's done mm. it before. I'm going to make sure nobody else has done it. So it's a kind of very different approach to making anything, which doesn't actually rely as much on that immediate heart opening connection and maybe more on the rational and the intellectual and this kind of uh, methodical ground mm. covering. Like tilling the soil or you know maybe a lot more time on your own with your thoughts because if you gave your thoughts away perhaps somebody else would steal them <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so yeah. yeah it's very 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 different and I think you've you've really put it in a in a positive way I feel more more um, validated because <laughs> <laughs> I, I always saw it as a flaw because no. I, I do I just sort of open my heart immediately <laughs> and then sometimes people are like put that away <laughs> I don't know if you're sad or happy who cares <laughs> oh my gosh no I I farthest thing from a flaw truly like I um I I think that I I admire that so much about you and it's something that 
makes me always look forward to any interaction that we have um, is that I know it's going to really, as you say, it's going to, it's going to come from the heart. Um, and I really, yeah, I really love that about you. So, <laughs> thank you, Miranda. I, I, I do wonder though, as you know, we're kind of talking about it. Um, I wonder if it's maybe something that is a little bit trickier to navigate in the culture of Britain. And I, I say this from my own travels and my own experiences, um, particularly in Australia, where I am also a, a hard on the sleeve kind of a gal. And I got that reaction in Australia a lot of the like, you're being really intense right now, and I'm not sure why, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Okay. And yeah, I, it could have been. Yeah. Could have been. So I don't and maybe, know. Yeah. I I wonder. Maybe it's just um I guess it's cultural and it's also office work yeah, being yeah. different from um teaching, for example. Right. Or I imagine, you know, yeah. vet work, you know, where vet work. Where yeah, I you know, as someone who's very attached to my dogs, I would um I would want to see your genuine feelings about my dogs, um, you know, and that yeah. would, that's actually what would build, build the trust, you know, um, just the other morning, this is sort of totally tangential, but just the other morning, uh, Tyrion, we woke up, Tyrion was asleep at the foot of the bed, like she usually is. And we're like, good morning. She's the smaller dog. And she looks up and her whole face is swollen. And oh, no. like, and we're like, oh no. And we ended up taking her to the vet at 7.30 in the morning, you know, as soon as they opened. And they thought she'd maybe eaten a scorpion. <laughs> so, oh, poor thing. Yeah. And so, but like, you know, seeing the very genuine concern from the vet tech and then the vet, you know, I was like, okay, like, I will give you my dog. You can take my dog in the back now to run a blood test on her. You know, like, like it, it. It, it's necessary. And I, I, I've talked about this before, I think, on the podcast, that the only thing I believe really builds connection between people is vulnerability. And um, and so, yeah, I'm sure that's that's part of it as well. And and you've gone from this place where, you know, vulnerability, you know, speaking as the, the consumer of 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 veterinary practices, you know, <laughs> is it such a, a a plus to see that, you know, to see, oh, like you look genuinely concerned about the comfort level of my dog right now. Like that yeah. puts me in a place of ease. Whereas, yeah, office life is really different. It's, it's, it is really different. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, for example, I used to, it's really funny because I, I started the job and I used to type really intensely in the corner of the office and people would stare at me and then they'd be a bit annoyed. And I realized that I was treating the computer like I was doing surgery oh. on, <laughs> on the machine. And I didn't want to take my attention off because I was really worried I had to keep it alive. Of course. <laughs> and then I'd kind of break from it and go and have tea and jump around and eat biscuits and then come back. And I realized that my tempo was really different from everybody else's. Totally. But I was treating the machine like a co-collaborator, like, let me be really kind to you and, <laughs> and, and connect with you. Yeah, yeah. So. Like it was your, your little corgi that, you know, that uh, you needed to fix up or something yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah well culture shock totally well you speaking of of yeah of that of that world i would love it if you could speak to a little bit the center for pine fi, the center for pi, the center for pine for fine for pine print the center the center for fine print research um because you know it's 
it has uh, this really, I feel like, illustrious name, and it's it's been something that I've personally been really interested in. Um, and and you know, maybe talk a bit to if you want to kind of like the the mission of the center and and how you kind of fit into it. Okay, yeah. So this center, uh, I think it was born twenty one years ago, and it was um, a renegade group of people who wanted to make a bridge between print, you know, traditional print in all its glory and technology. And so Stephen Hoskins, who, um, and Karina Paraman, I think the two kind of one of the earlier, earlier members, I think Stephen Hoskins founded it. And I think Karina's one of the people who, well, she runs it now. You'll have to edit this because it's a real jumble. I should say <laughs> nicely. <laughs> So um, basically, they, I think, for example, like one of the projects was to see whether there was a way of developing water-based screen print inks, Mm -hmm. because oil-based inks were so intense and beautiful, but they're so bad for you. Mm -hmm. Like, so Stephen Hoskins developed the water-based printing system for, for, for commercial screen printing that we use generally now. I think that's one of them. And the other things that they're investigating ways of um, transferring designs um, from metal onto ceramic by using transfer papers. This is a really old industrial technique that was common in the pottery factories like in Stoke-on-Trent. And they would they're, well, they're currently looking into a way of digitizing this process or making this process sustainable for the future. So it's kind of like the interface between old star print and new star technology that they're concerned with. And um, so my colleagues are amazing. I, I'm not one of the makers there, but I have a colleague who is investigating printing um, by extruding clay Mm. Uh, so they've made these amazing motors and they're getting the clay just to the right um, tackiness so that they can use it to kind of print chimneys um, and walls. So they're having fun doing that. We see them in one corner. And then there's another group of people who are working with graphene. So they're trying to make futuristic textiles mm. with graphene that has a conductive ability. So it could potentially become a biosensor that would then maybe check whether your blood glucose level was correct so you could maybe wear a vest if you were diabetic and it would tell you whether you needed insulin oh wow super cool and i have a colleague who's interested in um printing ceramics that then fire so that was stephen hoskins and david hewson and they made these really beautiful things um which have a very kind of powdery quality to them so they're ceramic objects that you can print and then fire and some of them will glaze themselves it's not magical um and a colleague who's making a painting robot fabio Danano, <laughs> he's like it's really funny because he's got this robot and it will paint a line and then it will turn upside down and take a picture of the line that it's drawn and decide whether it drew a good line or not oh my gosh unbelievable we're gonna be so, replaced yeah <laughs> he's always trying to um he's always trying to work on these fields but i still think that our level is so much more advanced and this mm. is the baby steps towards getting a robot to color in a a, a picture book for right. example but he's really working on that and um another colleague is making um uh 
an, a fake abdomen so that surgeons can use it for doing gallbladder surgery. So she's printing um, abdominal parts, which is also completely mad. It's Maureen Shaw, she's doing a PhD. And it's just, you know, this kind of like magical use of print. So yeah. print for futuristic ideas. Like um, so, so many yeah. different things going on, you know, from robots yeah. to surgery. Um, that's so and interesting. Inks. There's um, a group of people. Oh, they're trying to revive old print technologies. Like, have you ever heard of Woodbury type? It's, I um, don't think so. It was really popular, and it was a way of making a photographic reproduction of something by using a plate to put colored gelatin onto paper. And the gelatin was colored so that where it was thick, it would look darker, and where it was thin, it would look lighter. And you got these incredible, like, basically sculptural objects that looked two-dimensional photographic yeah and they're kind of trying to revive this technique and they're trying to print in color with it as well so it's it's completely bonkers and it's completely amazing so yeah there's that group anyway uh, there are a lot of people who are really cool and they're making things and i am doing a magazine so uh-huh. i'm i've just worked with words all day and people send in their um articles and I send them out for peer review and then we edit them together and they get published in the Impact Printmaking Journal. Yeah. So um, so you're also doing a PhD there as well. So it's it's a center for fine print research, but it's it's attached to the University of West England, right? Mm-hmm. So it's um, does the work that you do there intersect with your PhD or are these two completely separate sides of your life? Yeah, the PhD is slightly separate because I started it in April 2020 in lockdown. Mm. And um, it's about... Um, ways of capturing tacit knowledge in relief printmaking processes. So I'm looking at ways of filming people, filming hands and gestures, and uh, maybe slowing the footage down or taking really detailed audio capture and seeing how, whether I can, um, well, I don't know yet because I'm halfway through, Uh (laughs) but I'm seeing if there are, um, you know, those like micro gestures or like if I can reveal how things are done by the way I film them. Um, I'm kind of in the middle of a lot of theory at the moment. So I've been reading all about qualitative research and mm. um, different ways of approaching video. For example, whether you are suspicious or empathetic. <laughs> So it's really, it's quite theoretical, but I'm I'm having fun and I'm working with these three printmakers who make up a collective called Pine Feroda, and they're great relief printmakers who work on wood. And we're making this massive collaborative print in the north coast of Devon together. And I've been filming it and looking at the footage and seeing how we all work differently and how we complement each other. So that's the kind of in the middle of the project um, that's happening at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I feel like, um, could you maybe speak to a bit more... Oh, can you hear me? Yeah. Shall I explain a bit more? Because I sort of just rambled. Yeah, I was saying, so I, I understand like the, the um, you know, kind of like the, the, the capturing and, and, and deconstructing of gestures. And I understand the relief printmaking. But how, how do they interact? Are you filming them making the relief prints? Or how does that intersect? 
So what I've done so far, um, I've actually looked at two types of relief printing. I'm looking at Japanese woodblock, mm-hmm. um, mokuhanga, and I'm looking at wood wood and liner cut just relief, like the way you carve the block and the way you apply ink and the way you print it. And um, for example, I'm trying to maybe capture and potentially verbalize things that we know how to do that we don't know how we know how to do them. Uh-huh. Yeah. For example, in Japanese woodblock, there's a technique called gomazuri, which means sesame seed effect. And it's a really beautiful effect where the paint goes very speckledy when there isn't quite enough glue or pressure in the mix. And every textbook says, oh, when you're a beginner, when there's a new block, this generally happens. But as the block warms up, don't worry, it'll go away. So there's this kind of like, don't worry about it sort of attitude to this very beautiful effect that a lot of people in the 40s used in um, the kind of Shinhanga movement. Sorry, the Sosakuhanga movement, the uh-huh. creative movement. So I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to quantify how we do these things? So I've been measuring the humidity of the paper, the humidity of the air, the temperature, the um, speed of my brush strokes, the pressure that I put on the back of the paper, in order to find how this thing that we know how to do that uh, we don't know how to uh-huh. say is made. And so I've done it from bottom up with that project. Um, with the other printmakers, obviously it's it's their bodies and their approach and their, their secrets and their gestures. So what I've done is, this is slightly top secret because I haven't actually published it yet, but I'm really excited. <laughs> I've made a new technique. Oh. I've made up a new technique of printing, which um, I've called Heartland Hunger. It's just a new technique, like a thing, a really mad way of doing things. Uh-huh. And I've taught it to these people and they're doing it better than me. <laughs> but in a way, it's kind of like um, the filming of me making this new technique and then showing people how to do it and then watching how they use it demonstrates how we transmit knowledge, this mm. unspoken verbal knowledge, how we draw on our wealth of experience. So we already know how wood moves and we know how much pressure to put on the back of paper and we're using them unconsciously. And then the bit that's new suddenly jumps into into the, into the focus. You suddenly realise, um, you know, that, that how, how you have to transmit it and what people have to know in order to be able to understand it. For example, they need to know how it sounds um, or they right, need to know yeah. how much I linger at the end of a, of, of a movement. And when they copy that, they will then successfully surpass what I showed them how to do. So it's kind of like an experiment, but um, they're really up for it and they're really good. And they honestly, I, I've made this technique up and they're way better than me at it. So um, hopefully I'll get to tell you all about it in, in a more formal way soon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes complete sense to me now. Um, <laughs> it, yeah. Like a, a little, Sorry. no, no, no. I, I, I do understand how it's, it's really difficult, especially right when you're in the weeds of something, when you're, when you're still wading through it, you know, to, to have the top-down view to give a consistent elevator pitch, but um, it it it's really fascinating because there 
I what you're speaking of, I I see so much in print studios. Um, I actually just did a uh, tour of Tamarind with Tim um, a couple yeah. of weeks ago. Um, I got to see uh, Brandon Gunn, their educational coordinator, and got to see all these students who are in the process of learning, you know, this really, really high-end lithography and asking them and engaging with them about the process of their collecting this knowledge is right in line with what you're saying, you know, sort of, um, you know, if there, there was um, um, a wonderful young woman there named Lindsay who was printing um, uh, a, a litho and using transparent ink. And so she's taking this ink with her roller and she's transferring it to this plate. And I asked, and, but like the, the plate, the color of the plate doesn't seem to be changing because it's mm. such a light. And I was like, well, how do you know when it's ready? Because she can't just, count mm. although counting has a bit to do with it but you know as she's the ink is changing that she's rolling the amount mm. of swipes she needs to make on the plate is changing because mm. you know that maybe the ink's getting a little bit thinner or it's warming up and mm-hmm. you know and basically the answer was you know sight smell sound texture you know it's it's mm. it's this really transient feeling and Mm. ephemeral feeling uh, and variable feeling that she Mm. is just getting a sense for. And so that's just, anyway, it just sounds really much in line with what you're, you're working on is like, how do we actually quantify that kind of knowing, which is really intrinsic to being a really accomplished printmaker? Yeah, exactly. You've just said it beautifully and it's called endangered material practice. I, it has a real a, a real word for it. Um, uh, maybe it isn't in, endangered because so many people are learning, but um, because it's not written or right. formally transmitted necessarily in explicit terms, um, sometimes techniques just disappear. People don't know how they were done. Right when you know Stradivarius died, like nobody knows how he made his varnish. Yeah. Um, so there are all these conversations about. Um, these very beautiful habits which have a basis in specific um, material outcomes. And um, I always laugh because I think everybody I've seen from Tamarind puts one hand behind their back when they're printing. They tuck a hand away. I don't know if they're still doing it or if it's just the the four or five people that I've met. They kind of tuck it, tuck it behind their back. And lean forward like a kind of like a very fancy butler. The tamarind tuck, yeah. I think so, yeah. Well, um, which is probably yeah. to stop you from waving your other hand around and bringing dust onto your plate mm-hmm. or you know, like crashing into something. I don't know, but um, I really love seeing that. I think, oh, they've probably been to tamarind if they do that. That's so interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. And- and it, uh, it, and the, and the connection with movement too, because, um, you know, I know that you've had explorations of movement, um, before, you know, this research and, and I, uh, you know, I have a background in dance and was quite serious about it for a few years in my early twenties. And I still, my body still remembers so much of those movements that I could never describe. And, you know, Tim will ask me about it, you know, and I'll be like, no, 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 you know. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. I, I, they're really lovely parallels in, mm-hmm. in language with people who teach things like yoga, where they'll say, like, imagine a string pulling your middle finger to the mm-hmm. other side, um, or um, imagine that you are a column of 
or whatever, you know, a column yeah. of water. Um, imagine you're trying to swim through a tiny hole. This kind of imagination is so specific that um, I think it, you know, the, the description in a way, the lyrical description in a way, is a lot more accurate than having me say, um, now extend your arm to, <laughs> you know, 90 degrees to the floor. Totally. <laughs> you know, with tension yeah. in your middle finger. It's like, well, okay. <laughs> It doesn't have the same heart or the same kind of um, holistic uh, communication. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Oh, that sounds really interesting and and really rewarding. I, I it sounds like you're excited about it too, which is always always a good place to be halfway through your PhD. I've I've talked to a few people who are only halfway <laughs> through and already, you know, sounding a little bit uh, worn down by it. But what a what a interesting universal and specific thing to study because of course it is so specific to to the craft at which you know we have this absolute you know obsession but yeah Mm. but it also as you say you know can translate to dance and to yoga and to violin varnishes um yeah how interesting oh it's wonderful well i'm glad you you're excited excited for me (laughs) I definitely... Because I'm at the daunted stage, actually. Oh. Clarifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I think, although, yeah, I, that I do identify that as well, and I, and I think you know the advanced degrees have this this uh, ebb and flow to them, where there's this opening and opening and opening and opening, where like you you see this spider web of research, and you realize it could go on forever. And how am I ever going to do my lit review? You know, <laughs> like. Um, but then you know it does it does flow back. You know there is a narrowing in the second half of the journey. Just keep the faith; it'll happen. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, well. Before we um, sign off, can you tell me something that maybe you're you're looking forward to in in the future? Something on the horizon um, that maybe you want people to look out for. You know, whether that's the impact conference or getting to travel or maybe you should you should come in your research you should come visit tamarind that you need to come see me in the desert yeah yeah i would really love that actually um i think i told you before i'm in a pause i'm not making any Mm -hmm. work because to make work is opening up my sadness for my dad who passed away last summer so i'm not making anything at the moment but I have just attended a really wonderful conference on Mokuhanga in Nara, and um, I've cooked up a panel and a portfolio for the Impact Conference in September, and I invite people to submit to the panel and the portfolio. Um, It's called Meet Me at the Edge of Infinity, Mm. and it's about how we use color blends and gradients. In Japanese woodblock, it's bokashi, is the idea of very dark, area fading to a very pale area and often used to kind of denote dusk or um you know the the kind of interior by candlelight it kind of pushes the viewer to look at certain areas and pushes them to look away from other areas and it's this also very um kind of beautiful conversation about the analog the non-photographic version of sculptural form mm-hmm. you know a lot of photographs have these beautiful expressions of light okay you guys can do that but you know we're doing it by hand so what happens when you have this very lovely 
color shifts from one to another. It kind of makes it look very um, luscious and juicy and um, exciting and um, maybe, you know, gives you the idea of the gleam of light off metal or off, off lips like in the pop artist's. So I want people to think about it, about the kind yeah. of non-binary color, as it were. You know, mm-hmm. actually, we've been looking at the screen. So we have this kind of non, non-binary world that we live in now. We're not in, a, we're not in fully in human form, but we're not fully in digital form either. So it's quite a kind of psychological, metaphorical and tactile, physical um, theme that I would like to explore. And um, the Impact Printmaking Conference is a print conference run from my university in Bristol. Um, but this year we'll do it online as well as in person. And it's a little bit like SGCI. I think it was mm-hmm. um, inspired by SGCI. Uh, we have about 600 delegates normally and a massive festival of exhibitions and talks and demonstrations and everything to do with print will descend on Bristol throughout the summer and culminate in this conference at the end of September. Mm, so please love if you want. Yeah. And and so for people to um, submit, what would be the deadline for that to, to be involved um, in what you're doing? Good point. <laughs> uh, I remember, I think it's something like the maybe the 14th of March. Okay. I think it might have been the 4th of March, but I think I've changed it to the 14th. 14th. But in reality, um, I think it's something that I would like to extend into book format later. Yeah. So I think even if you didn't submit to this panel, I would love to make an exploration into gradients and blends on all levels mm-hmm. and, and, and make something a little bit bigger. So it, this could be the beginning of a conversation that I'm fascinated about, that maybe we haven't explored um, print from that sort of lens before. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's so inky. It's so resolutely about the printed um, object that uh, I think we should focus on it a little bit. Wonderful. And and how can people uh, find you and get in touch with you and um, maybe think about inky gradients together? (laughs) Um, you can find me on Instagram, and my tag is Winjin W U O N G E A N, um, and I often tag everything Diary of a Printmaker hashtag Diary of a Printmaker. Although I'm sure other people are using that too. Um, the University of West of England Centre for Fine Print Research is C F P R dot U W E dot ac dot uk so that's the center and you'll see Mm -hmm. all the links to everybody and more of all the crazy projects that are going on there um and i would love to meet you all at impact 12 so you could just google impact 12 printmaking conference and perhaps it will come up on your search and you can see all the course of participation and take part and come along Wonderful, because the you said it'll be online, but the in-person part of it will be in Bristol, yeah? Yeah, from 21st to 25th of September, if no new variants appear. Okay. So let's keep our fingers crossed. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, yeah. 
Thank you so much for talking with me again. Um, I always come away from our our conversations just feeling inspired and just very uh, grateful to have you as a friend and colleague. So thank you. Thank you, Miranda. It's so nice to talk to you. It's lovely to hear your gorgeous voice. (laughs) I'm really, really, really happy for you. I'm so happy you've got an exciting um, new job and that you've moved back to the US and that everything seems to be going very well and I hope to see you soon if you like today's episode we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content like Shop Talk Shorts with our editor Timothy Pauschak who digs deep on materials processes and techniques with our guests also if you listen this far you might be that special kind of print friend who will leave us a review on Apple Podcasts it would mean the world to us if you did and it does make a difference and that's our show for this week Join me again next week when my guest will be Paula Pashenko, director of Tandem Press at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. We talk about the founding of this iconic institution. What is it about Tandem that brings such big name artists to come and collaborate? What's it like to have David Lynch come and knock on your office door? And of course, the exciting upcoming SGCI conference hosted by University of Wisconsin. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.